All right, if you had some kiddos sign up for Kids Church, they're going to be uh, filing out of that door to, the, to my left, to your right. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm in that group. Um, one quick word of announcement before I get started. Um, we try to do a, a, most of our um, communication and announcements uh, other ways rather than, you know, at this time. But uh, one, one important thing that's coming up that's kind of time sensitive. Um, about, I guess it's been about eight or ten years ago now, Ashley and I had attended this conference over in Texas called No Need Among You. Um, and this conference was, um, it was really an educational um, conference about uh, how to practically implement ministry uh, in an urban and suburban context. So like if I literally wanted to like read the Bible and understand uh, what God's will was for my life and for the life of the church and then for the, um, for the subsequently for the neighborhood, um, then what, did that, what does that practically look like? How does that practically flesh out? And so um, that was it was, that was like the first or second year they had that conference, and it's grown since then. And we've uh, many of, many of you have gone to that conference since then, um, and and we're going to go back again this year. Um, and it's actually coming up pretty quick. And I know that it's kind of last minute, but if you if you can if your schedule is flexible enough, I want to encourage you to think about going. Um, it's going to be September 11th through the 13th. It's a Wednesday through uh, through a Friday, and it's going to be in San Antonio, Texas. Um, this uh, this year, they move around the, uh, the Texas area um, every year, and so this year it lands in San Antonio. Just a, a, a neat time to, to see practical ministries that are taking place uh, in, in their area. They bring people in who are doing this stuff, who have boots on the ground, um, who are doing ministry and and just kind of learning from them. So um, so if you if you want to do if you if you want if you're engaged, interested in that want to get engaged in that anyway, just talk to me or talk to Ashley um, after the service, and we can make sure to give you some more information about that. Um, now I want to open up with a question. Um, I wasn't sure until this week that this was gonna this. Our time together was going to be the way it was going to be, but it is what it is. So uh, to open up with a question, um, do you wish that you, like, do you ever think about it? Do you ever wish that you had more proof? Um, like a little more verification for the validity of Christianity. It's for the truths that you say you believe, right? Like, I believe this, but man, if I had some more solid things to grab onto, that would be helpful for me. And I know... Um, if, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is all of you in the room. It's some of us in the room, for sure. Um, but this is something that I'm always feeling. It's something that I kind of, listen, I get that I'm up here and I'm preaching the word, right? And I'm supposed to encourage you all to believe this word um, and, and stand on this word. It's one of my callings to steward, to preach, to proclaim God's word. Uh, and yet some of my deeper struggles are skepticism and doubt at the same time. Um, so it's not uncommon, I guess. I, I would hope not. And we've spent the last four weeks walking verse by verse through the book of Jonah. Old Testament prophecy, one of the minor prophets. Um, and when I read stories like Jonah, I, like here's what goes through my mind. Okay, if I see a guy get swallowed up by a fish and then spit back out to live and tell about it. If I saw a tree grow in one night... If I saw the seas just still at the, at, at the sound of a voice, if I were able to see those things, it would be so much easier for me to believe. 
I don't know if you guys think that way, but that's the, the whole time walking through the book of Jonah, this is some of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about, you know? And, and to be honest with you, many scholars and theologians and, and, and educated people uh, don't necessarily believe in the historicity of Jonah, that it's maybe just kind of a, a story, kind of a fable in the Bible to point to some truths, um, but I believe it's historical. I believe everything in the Bible is, is, is a historical events that have taken place. And so I say I believe that, and then here I am at the same time struggling with doubt, struggling with skepticism, struggling with wondering, you know, is there enough proof for me to know that this is really true? Here's the reality. Nothing like that's ever happened in my lifetime. I've never seen a guy get eaten by a fish and then spit back up and live to tell about it. It hadn't happened in my life, and it hasn't happened in the life of anyone that I've ever met. So there's almost this discrepancy then between what happens in my world and my worldview and, and miraculous events that we read about in Scripture. It seems like there's some different things, like this is almost a different world taking place. So can you resonate with that? Like, is it, show of hands, does anybody else ever think about that? Thank you. Man, I'm, I thought me and Dalen were the only ones going to sit here and struggle through this, you know. Appreciate that. Um, and so I, I want to do that because I, I know that we're, we're not in this alone, right? We're not in this alone unless everybody just kind of, okay, it's, 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 it's a big story and, and we're, I'm not alone in some of my doubts. Um, you're not alone in this group and you're certainly not alone in history. Um, our text today, we have some devout religious people who are skeptical. We've walked through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 of the book of Jonah. Um, and then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna bookend this, um, this series by looking at what Jesus has to say about this story, Jonah. Because uh, I know that Joey can attest to this. Trent's told me this. David's told me this. And I've experienced it. That Jonah has probably been one of the hardest books for us to teach. Because at the end of the day, like, it didn't come to some, like, big, huge conclusion where Jonah repented and he was in the Lord's favor. He walked away mad, man. He was mad at God for what God did. Like, he was just upset. Like, it didn't end on a good note. And so it's hard to, like, come around and teach just the book of Jonah to, to encourage us. Other than to say, don't be that dude. Like, that's the only way that I can teach that. Don't, don't be Jonah. Because that was the worst missionary ever to live in the history of the world. And so it's been kind of, kind of a struggle, and I want to read our text today, and I want you to kind of see what's, what's going on. Um, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be in verse uh, 38 through 42 today. And I'm going to read these sections, and then we'll kind of walk through them. So it's in verse 38 where we pick up. Jesus has been having conversations and things going on, and he's been preaching, and then it says this. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at, ju at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So we have these devout religious people who are a bit skeptical. 
They're listening to Jesus say all the things that Jesus is saying. And so they come to him and they're seeking a sign. They're looking for some proof. They want to know what's going on. They're after some kind of confirmation about the validity of what Jesus is saying. And for many of us, I, I think, like, when we think scribes and we think Pharisees and, and Sadducees, when we read that in Scripture, we immediately put them as the antagonist of the story, right? We immediately put them as the bad guy in the story. Like, these are the self-righteous ones. These are the hypocritical guys who are always judging people and always looking down on them and always condemning people. But we only know that because we're on this side of the story. You understand that? The only reason that we, when we see that is because Jesus has already looked into their hearts and told us what's in their hearts. And so, let's not, let's not be too harsh. It's important to remember that some of these Pharisees actually converted to Christianity. You had Nicodemus. You had Joseph of Arimathea. These were prominent Pharisees, prominent religious leaders who believed on Jesus after hearing the gospel preached, after seeing Jesus believed on him. And so I think it's fair for us to say that Pharisees, as, I mean, we can look at them as potentially sincere religious people. They're trying to figure out what they're supposed to do with Jesus. They're just trying to figure out what to do with this guy. These people who feared God, who, who read their scriptures, they were confronted with this person, Jesus. Who in some ways kind of confirmed their expectations of what was supposed to take place, and in, and in other ways just totally turned their expectations upside down. They were, they were wrestling with this. They were struggling with this. And, and, and they are left with what many of us are left with, aren't they? How do I know if this is what I should believe? How do I know for sure? How do I know that this is the one that I should follow? How do I know that this Jesus guy really is who he says he is? So they're asking Jesus, hey man, can you give me a little bit more to go on? Can you give me a little bit more to, to, to bite into? And so let's not... Let's not crucify these Pharisees and these scribes just yet, because I think that a lot of us are just like them. I think. Verse 38, you saw Jesus, some of the scribes, or the, the, some, the group come to him and say, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And this word sign, it's a very particular word in Scripture, as well as the consciousness of a Jewish person. This word sign, it echoes all the way back from the story in Exodus. This event that took place where God had come to Moses in the form of a, of a burning bush. And he tells Moses that he's heard the cry of his people who are, who are enslaved and, and, and held captive in Egypt. He's heard, heard their cries. And he would go on to tell Moses that he's, he's going to do something about it. He's, he's working it out. He's going to do something about it. And then he tells Moses to go to the Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. So that's, that's what's going on in that, in that moment. And Moses should tell God, he's like, like look, homie, you got the wrong guy. Like, I am the wrong one for that job. I, 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 there's a lot of things wrong why, why I shouldn't go. And God would tell him that he's going to give him the words to speak. That he's going to put the words in his mouth to speak. And, and, and not only that, but he's going to give him the capacity to perform signs and miracles so that Pharaoh would know and God's people would know that he is who he says he is. 
You see it in Exodus chapter 7, verse 9. When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. You see how this goes all the way back to the beginning? And so we have these religious people saying, we need to see a sign. We need to know if this is who you say, or you are who you say you are. And this is this sign, this word sign that's that, that said here. It's, it's recalling this moment that's happening in Exodus. It's the same. This word miracle that's used in Exodus is the same word translated as sign in the New Testament. It's the same word that they're using in Matthew chapter 12. So when they're using that sign, they're recalling this moment from their own story, from their own history where God did something. And a sign here, in the way these leaders are calling it, is something that can be perceived with senses, right? It can be perceived that, that then if I can perceive it with some, one of my senses, then I can validate the authority of this message. And that's what they're asking for, right? Aaron threw down a staff that, that became a serpent. I was able to see that. that. That was a miracle. Moses would strike a rock and water would spring from it. That's, that's a miracle. That's a sign that I can perceive. I can understand it. I can see it. I can touch it. Elijah would call down fire on the Mount Carmel as a way to prove that God was who he says he is. And so they're not asking for something here that God has not already shown himself willing to do. They're not out of bounds, so to speak, saying, hey, man, in our history and in our story, God was doing these things. You do them. If we're to believe you, you do them. Jesus, if you say, if you, if you are who you say you are, then do something like what we read about in Scripture. Do something like what happened in, in the Old Testament. But he answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, I don't know about you, that seems a little bit harsh for me. I just want some proof, Jesus, and you're calling me evil. You're calling me adulterous. Like, those are some abrasive words that you're using just because I'm a little skeptical, right? What could be so bad about wanting to see a sign? What could be so bad about asking for some proof? proof? But I, I want us today to think very, very deeply about this. I want us to really kind of, this is, this is not bottom shelf stuff. You're going to have to reach today. And I want you to be able to, I want you to do that. I want to give you some ways for us to think about this and to reach for top shelf stuff. We're going to strive to, to see what's going on here. What does demanding a sign reveal in us? What is it? What is it revealing us? I, I think the. I think the, like just surface level, it, it reveals just how shallow of a view of knowledge that we have. Right, like to say I can't believe something, or I, I'm unable to believe something unless I see see a sign. That's to embrace this kind of position or this this posture that says the only thing that I can really know are the things that I can access with my senses. That's the only thing thing that I can know. If I can see it, if I can smell it, if I can taste it, if I can touch it, if I can hear it, then it's real. Otherwise, can't be proven. Can't be true. And I think we all resonate with this because most of our knowledge comes to us this way, doesn't it? Most of what we know, most of what, we, uh, what knowledge we've acquired, it comes to us through our senses, through taste and touch and hearing and, and sight. And so I think we're all on the same page, but I want you to follow with me that most of us know these things 
And then there's some things that we know that have not or really cannot be verified in that way. And we ascribe to them. We believe them. We count them as truth. We know, or at least I hope we all know by now, that slavery is wrong. Right? It's, 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 it's wrong. It's, the, the Gospels are going to tell us that all people are created in the image of God and we are to love people as if they are God's people, right? And we're not to, we're not to um, uh, uh, misuse power, but we're to, we're to have equity in this world, uh, especially given to us through the gospel. But that's an ethical knowledge. That's an ethical knowledge. It can't be verified with our senses, can it? You can't see, taste, touch, smell, hear. You can't, it's, it's ethical. We know, every one of us in here know, that George Washington was the first president of the United States. But that's a historical knowledge. It can't be verified by my senses. But it's something that we all believe to be true, right? I think we all agree that there's such thing as the number two. But that's mathematical knowledge. Have you ever held a number two? Have you ever tasted a number two? Heard a number two? But do you believe that there's a number two? I know these are kind of silly, but I'm trying, to, I'm trying to help us understand that there's knowledge outside of what we can express and know with our senses. And so to, to come back around now and say, well, it can't be real unless I've you know, acknowledged it with one of my senses, is, it's, that's just not true. That's a shallow view of knowledge that we have. There are all types of these knowledges, and they can't be accessed through our senses. And, and so to say I can't believe unless I see a sign is to embrace a very narrow understanding of what knowledge actually is. Also, to say that I can't believe unless I see a sign is to suggest that my unbelief is due to a lack of information. It's like, I don't have enough information to believe. Like, that's what you're suggesting. So I need more information. I need more data. That if I just had more data, I would probably be more inclined to believe. But let's step back from that question for just a second. Let me just honestly ask you, is that really true? Is that really true? That you need more information, you need more data to, to mull through, to kind of consider whether you're going to believe or not? Like, how much, how much more data would you need? How much? What, what kind of data do you need? How much information will it take to overwhelm your unwillingness or inability to believe? How much do you need? Isn't it actually true that our problems with belief have little to do with information. And it has a lot more to do with our trust issues, with, with our control issues, with, with our fear issues. Isn't that, the, isn't that probably more true of us? It's not necessarily a lack of information. It's a lack of control that I might lose. It's a lack of, uh, or it's this fear that overwhelms me. So the thing that is holding us back is not really a lack of information. 
To say, I can't believe something unless I see a sign, is to demand that God meets me on my terms. It's to demand, God, you are to meet me here. Like, these are the parameters that we're going to meet. Now, I know we don't like to think of it that way or even say that way. We'd rather just use words like skepticism and doubt and things like that. But we're, in fact, demanding that God meet us where we are. That he's to come into in our space, into our thinking, into our sphere. And what we're really doing is we're just making demands of God. We're just making demands of him. What, what we're really saying is that God has given us what he has shown to us in history, what, what he's given us through his word, what we've seen in history. All of that is not enough. It's not enough. I need more. So God, you need to give me more. More signs, more different kinds of signs. And, and listen, what we're really saying is that what he's given us is... It's insufficient that he'll need to do more, that he'll need to do different. And if everyone in this room was relating to God this way, then what we're essentially saying is, God, I need you to show up in a hundred different ways to a hundred different people's preferences on how they would like to receive revelation from you. So crazy that sounds? It's crazy. And what I hope you see is that that is, in fact, us playing God. That's what's going on. Rather than allowing God to be God. And Jesus is saying, I'm not having any of that nonsense. I'll not have any of that nonsense. It's how he goes into, he'll, he's not going to give in to their demands for a sign. Rather, he would go on to say, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So would we say week one, week two, week three, week four, Jonah is pointing to something greater. It's not just about the story Jonah. Jonah is pointing to a greater Jonah. He's pointing to a greater redemption, a greater mercy. He's pointing to something beyond himself in this story. And Jesus is teaching us here how to read our Bibles. In this text, he's teaching, teaching us a good, healthy way to read our Bible. What he's saying is that they don't really understand the book of Jonah unless they see what Jonah is pointing to. The book of Jonah speaks to something beyond Jonah. And there are two common ways that we typically read our Bibles. Two very common ways. One is that we read it as a, um, as a, as a religious instruction manual. Kind of like a, I don't know, kind of like a, an encyclopedia of religious knowledge, a reference, a reference book of moral commands. That's kind of how we approach the Bible. Some of us do that. And so when you read it this way, it sort of becomes disconnected. It's this book of moral lessons and spiritual advice that you, you would consult as you would an encyclopedia. Oh, well, I've had a bad season in my life, so let me go see what the Bible says about suffering. My marriage is in the tank, so let me go see what the Bible has to say about marriage. I have squandered all the finances that I've had, and so I need to go find out what the Bible has to say about money. And so we tend to use the Bible that way. And, and the, the danger when reading the Bible this way is that we're, we're essentially making the story about us. And that's dangerous. The other way to read our Bibles is as a, as a unified story of redemption from front to back. It's one connecting story. Not an encyclopedia, not a reference book, not a religious manual, but a story 
from Genesis all the way to Revelation. One story of God's grace to redeem the world from sin and brokenness and to restore it to the way He intends it to be. Reading the, the Bible that way. So when you read the Bible as a story, you understand that a story has many chapters. And these many chapters are building to a climax in, in the story, in the moment. And there's going to be a resolution to the tension that's happening in the story. That's how we're to read Scripture. And this is how Jesus is teaching us to read the Bible. This is what He's doing in this moment. And if you grab the book of Jonah as a piece of moral instruction... Or just you pick it up out of Scripture as, as religious knowledge without picking up where it fits in the whole story, you're going to miss the point and you're going to be frustrated with the whole story. There's going, there's going to be some confusing points about this. You're going to try to figure out what's going on. It's not going to really make any sense outside of the entire story. And so this is one unified story. From front to back, Jonah is a moment that is just leading up to the climax of the story. Just one chapter in, in an entire book. But if you still can't get there, if you still can't like see it that way, Jesus is going to go on and help us make the connection. And he does that in verse 40. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying to us this morning, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah has arrived. And he breaks it down, his, this claim that he makes, he breaks it down into, into two parts, two ways uh, in which Jonah would point to Jesus. So he's kind of, we're, we're in Bible study now. Jesus is teaching us how to read our Bible, and then he's kind of giving us some examples. And he's saying, okay, here's one way that Jonah points to me, points to a greater story. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying that Jonah is just pointing to, to a greater triumph over death that's to come. He's pointing to, to, to a greater triumph over death. Remember when we were in Jonah chapter 2, we saw journey, Jonah's journey into the belly of the fish, how he was thrown overboard, and as he was descending into the deep, as he was going down, down, down into the water, into the belly of the fish, he's thrown overboard, sinking under the water, and then God sends this great fish. And the poem that he writes expresses this event. As... As Jonah is descending into the deep, he writes a poem. <laughs> and it expresses this descent down into the grave. And he'd say, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head in the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah sees his rescue in, this, in the fish when he sees this moment. He sees a tiny triumph over death. That, God, that he was on his way to the grave and God saved him. That God in his mercy sent a great fish and saved him. I was going down to death and God rescued me. But how much greater than this is Jesus' triumph over the grave, over death? How much greater? While Jonah went to the edge of death, Jesus went all the way to death. He went all the way, and he's greater than Jonah in his triumph over death. And that's, the, that's one of the ways that Jesus points us to this greater Jonah, this greater redemption. 
And he's inviting us to participate in that triumph. Not only did he triumph over the grave, over death, and over sin that he's conquered it, but he's invited all of us to participate with him in that, in that triumph, in that defeat, in the conquering. This is why death doesn't scare the follower of Jesus, or it shouldn't scare the follower of Jesus. It's just, it's just a prelude to a greater life, isn't it? Like it's, it's just a, it's a better life to come. And this is why we can face death with courage and we can face death with, with conviction. Just as Jesus wasn't left in the grave, neither will we be left in the grave. He says, I'm pointing to a greater triumph over death. But not only that, the other way he says that he is the greater Jonah is that in the message that he has to proclaim, in the, in the, in the words that he has to say, he says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so the focus is on Jonah's preaching and on how the people of Nineveh responded and now on Jesus' preaching and how much more we should respond. That's the focus. Remember the eight-word sermon that Jonah preached? Not only was he the very worst missionary to ever walk the planet, he preached the worst message that you could ever preach. Eight words didn't even mention God. Like, he goes in the journey into the city after he finally submits and says, Okay, God, I'll go. You saved me. I'll go and preach to these knuckleheads. And he goes, he walks for a day, and then he says, looks around and says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was his sermon. That was what he preached. That's all we know of what Jonah said. That's all that Scripture gives us. Now, if you're living in Nineveh, and there's this dude walking around town who looks like he's been living on the inside of a fish, and he's yelling out at the crowd saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, um, you might be tempted to ask for more information. Like, maybe. You, you might be sitting there thinking, so is this like a fixed 40 days? Are we talking, we got some flexibility in this, we got some margin in this 40 days. What are we talking about here? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? When you say overthrown, like what kind of overthrown are we talking about? Like, is this going to be like some flooding or something going on or something's going to burn down? Like, what are you talking about when you say overthrown? You're looking for more information because this is weird. It's not, it's not a very detailed message and, and there's not a ton of information, but how do the people of Nineveh respond? They repent. They repent. And, and now back to what Jesus says, if the people of Nineveh repented after hearing that tiny bit of a message, that tiny bit of information, how much more should you repent after hearing my words? So we're in Matthew chapter 12. That's where we are. There are 16 chapters remaining in the book of Matthew in this gospel. But up to this point, Jesus is going to say a lot of other things beyond Matthew chapter 12. But up to this point, Jesus has spoken nearly 5,000 words up to this point in Matthew chapter 12. Including the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon, the greatest sermon, the best and most beloved message that was ever preached on the face of the earth. How much more content has Jesus given us to respond than the people of Nineveh had? How much more content, how much more information, how much more data has been given to us than what Nineveh had? And as David had shared a few weeks ago, Jonah's message, it was a gospel in the seed form. 
um, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. It was implicitly a command to repent. It, it, It implied that if you turn to God, he might relent. He might not overthrow. If you just repent, if you turn to God, and we learned that they understood this message in the way that they responded. They repented. From the, from the king all the way down to the peasant, everyone in the city repented. So if Jonah's message was sort of this proto-gospel, this gospel in seed form, how much more do we have with Jesus coming on the scene? Who gives us the Beatitudes. Who gives us the Lord's Prayer. Who gives us the golden rule, who tells us what the kingdom of God is like. All of these things that Jesus has given us, and around every turn, there He is inviting us to come and find rest, and come and find redemption in this message and who He is and who He says He is. Come and and lay all your burdens on me, and I'm going to give you rest, is how He invites us into that story. Something greater than Jonah has come. The the greater Jonah has arrived. Why is Jesus saying that? And and what does He want us to do in response to that? Why does He say that, and how are we to kind of react to that? The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He'll go on to the next verse and say that something greater than Solomon is here. He's going to just kind of make the same point with a, different, uh, with a different reference. And what he's saying is that, hey, listen, the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament and the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament, they all culminate on me. I am the fulfillment of all of it. And on Judgment Day, Jesus is going to, he pictures it this way, and he gives us this picture of, of the people of Nineveh there being present, who had repented at the hearing of Jonah's message, who are now in, in, in glory with Jesus, standing there as we come before God as to give an account of our lives. He gives us that picture that they're standing there, and they're going to be like wondering why in the world you didn't repent. Their minds are going to be blown at the fact that you sat in Sulphur Community Church and you heard the gospel over and over and over. You sang songs like, Great Are You, Lord, which is just words taken straight out of Psalm 150. And you didn't repent? Their minds are going to be blown, is how Jesus paints that picture for us. Because they repented with so little information. And we fail to repent with so much information. Because Jesus is so much greater than Jonah, what should we do? We should... Starts with an R. Repent. We should repent. And let's talk about that word because I think for many, I think for many of us, this word falls into some certain connotation in our American consciousness. Um... So when you hear that word repent, I know that there's probably a lot of feelings and a lot of thoughts uh, and a lot of reaction to that. Some of you may get angry. Uh, Some of you may get confused. Some of you may think that it's irrelevant to you. Um, So we probably all have some bit of a reaction. But here's a solid definition. I didn't write this. Someone else wrote this, but it just nails it. It says, to repent means to change your strategy for living. To change your strategy for living. Repentance is to rethink. Rethink your whole life from the ground up in light of who Jesus is. 
to consider your entire life and to rethink it and to reshape it in light of who Jesus is. It's not just tweaking a few behaviors. It, it, it's not just, you know, dialing in a few things here or there. It's not, it's not putting away some things that you might be ashamed of or embarrassed about. It's not setting out a couple of new habits. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is turning your whole life over to Jesus. Everything over to Jesus. Submitting it all to Him. And what I hope we're starting to realize is that so many of us are like the scribes and the Pharisees. So many of us are like that. When it comes down to it, man, I got one foot in and I got one foot out. I'm kind of there, but I'm not all the way there. I'm intrigued by Jesus. I'm interested in what he has to say. I think that he's a compelling figure. But man, I'm just not confident. And I don't know if I'm willing to go all in. I don't know if I'm willing to go all the way there. I'm intrigued, but I'm not sure. Like I, I'm compelled, but I'm, I'm withholding. Holding out for a greater confirmation. Holding out for a greater proof. Something that happened that would give me full confidence to push all my chips on the table and go all in with Jesus. I need a little bit more, Blake. I'm kind of I'm on the line. And what Jesus is telling you this morning is you have everything you need. You have all the information you need. You have all the proof that you need. You have all the words that, that you need. You have everything that you need. You have his coming. You have his incarnation, him coming and identifying with us. His teaching and his proclamation of the kingdom of God. His crucifixion on a Roman torture tool. You have his burial in the grave. You have the, the resurrection from the grave three days later. And victory over death. What else do you need? What else do you need? He's not giving you any more signs. He's not giving you any more proof. He's already given you his life. So, will you repent as the people of Nineveh did? Will you rethink your entire strategy for living based on the claims of Jesus and who he says he is? Will you follow him? Will you go all in? Will you push all your chips on the table and say, all bets are on Jesus and I'm giving my whole life to him? We spent four weeks studying the book of Jonah. What are you going to do about it? Are you just going to leave here saying, I know more things about the book of Jonah now? That would be a tragedy. That would be a tragedy if all you did was have head knowledge leaving out of here. The book of Jonah is to point us to a greater repentance. How much more have we been given than the people of Nineveh who would respond and say, Oh my God, have mercy on my soul. Are you going to just reduce it to a moralistic children's story? Just something that you're going to decorate your kid's room with when they're born? Are you going to see the story for what it is? Pointing to a greater redemption, a greater mercy. Are you willing to see the promise that it points to in Jesus and change your strategy for living? That's what, the, that's what Jesus is trying to teach us in this moment. We have all we need.
and let's just call it what it is. It's trust issues. It's control issues. It's fear. Those are the things that you need to overcome to change your strategy for living. It's not that you need more information. It's not that you need more proof. Not that you need some more data. But you need Jesus to do a work in your life. And you need to surrender and let him work on your life. Let him show you just how powerful, just how willing, and just how able he is to save you. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning hopeful. Hopeful in your word, hopeful in your promises. And God, you know, you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know our thoughts, and you are quite able to handle the doubt that we might have, and you are quite able to handle the skepticism and the questions that we might have. But I thank you so much, Father, that anything that you give us from this point forward would just be lanyard, that you have given us all we need in Christ Jesus in his life, in his coming to us, in his identifying with us, in his living a life for us that we could not live on our own, being an acceptable sacrifice which we were so far away from, and defeating that great tyrant that is death, the thing that haunts every one of us. So now we can live without fear, we can live with boldness and confidence, not in our own abilities, but in the, in the power that comes through the Spirit, that Spirit that has been afforded to us in you, Jesus. I thank you that this whole story just points to a greater redemption, a greater desire to see your glory made known on this earth and how you save us, and how you equip us, and how you empower us. And so would you do that? Would you breathe a fresh wind of your spirit in our souls this morning? Father, we need that so bad right now. And as we leave here, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. We love you, Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.